Welcome to River Fellowship Podcast. At River Fellowship, we strive to experience God, exalt Christ, embrace community, and engage the world. This week, lead pastor Daryl Anderson takes us through Judges 6 through 8. In today's two truths, we see the importance of looking through the proper lens and understanding how you can defeat your enemy, even against seemingly impossible odds. If you'd like to learn more about River Fellowship, go to rfamarillo.org. Well, we're still in Judges chapter 6, actually chapter 6 through 8. We're going through the story uh, of Gideon, this little mini-series entitled God and Gideon, where we're looking at some aspects of Gideon, but we're also looking at some great characteristics of God and how the relationship between God and Gideon is going. And we're really just walking through the story and uncovering some applicable truths for our own life. So far, we've covered three truths. The first truth is that God is the God of grace and salvation. So anytime we come to God with a sincere heart, he always responds to us with grace. The second truth is that God encounters are essential. Our God encounters are essential and they lead, those encounters lead us to worship and peace and obedience and courage. The third truth is that God understands our humanity. He understands all about our humanity. So he's able to work in us and through us and for us, even in the midst of our humanity issues like pain and doubt and questions and fear. So we let those humanity issues not pull us away from God, but to bring us into closer fellowship and relationship with God. So this morning, I want to share two more truths with you. And here's truth number four. God sees us differently than we see ourselves. God sees us differently than the way we tend to see ourselves. Now, as you can tell, I wear glasses, corrective lenses. I'm nearsighted, which if I remember right, that means I can see near and I can't see far. I think that's what's nearsighted. So when I say I can see near, I can see about this far and everything else is just blurry. I, can't, I couldn't tell you who you are right now. All I can see is blurred faces. In fact, when I go to the eye doctor and see that little eye chart, I can't even see the, the top letter without my glasses on. That's how blind I am. So I wear corrective lenses. However, these aren't the only glasses that I happen to have at the house. We do have a few more at the house. Let me just show you a few of these. We have readers there, and everybody knows what readers are. You, you put them on so you can read. Well, for me, when I put on readers, it's worse because I'm nearsighted, and so trying to read with these readers is more blurry than not having any glasses on at all. And when I look through these, all I see is a blurry mess. But I do have some St. Patrick Day glasses. <laughs> Don't ask me why. But the deal about this is the lenses are green. So everything I look at is green. The wall is green. The floor is green. Your faces are green. I'm looking at a bunch of green people. So it distorts everything and makes it look green. Now, these are actually pretty cool. I went to the eye doctor a few months ago, and um, they dilated my pupils and did some of that other kind of stuff. So when I left, they said, we can't let you look out in the sun because it's going to be too bright. So they gave me these cool-looking shades, and I'd never seen these before. There's no frame at all, but you just kind of put them on, and they just stick. They're actually pretty cool-looking. <laughs> 
and they work. You can look right up in the light. You can, I could look right up in the sun and you can't see anything. They're so dark that everything that you look through now, it's just, it's just darkness, basically. Pretty cool. We also have some July 4th glasses. Some more cool shades. Now, these, you can tell, you, they've got all these uh, lines going across. It looks like you're looking through mini blinds or something. And so when you're looking through there, half of my image is blocked and there are a lot of blind spots because those bars are blocking everything. So it's, again, it's a distorted look. Now, for those of you that have young kids or maybe young grandkids, you've probably already seen these or maybe bought these for them. These are really cool. They're really uh, designed for Christmas so that when you go look at Christmas lights, you put these on and this says, see a snowman in every point of light. When you put these on and you look through here and you look at light bulbs, Every light bulb looks like a snowman. So when you go look at Christmas lights or whatever, every single light distorts it and makes it look like a snowman. It's actually pretty cool. Here's the point I'm trying to make with this. The lens you look through determines how you see things. The lens you look through determines how you see things. So the key is not to look just through any lens but the key is to look through those lenses that help you see things correctly and accurately to see things the way that they really are. And in this Gideon story, what we see here is that God and Gideon are not looking through the same lens. Remember, Israel has sinned. They've been under the oppression of the Midianites now for seven years. They are ravaged and they are impoverished. And so they cry out to the Lord. God hears their cry, and so he begins this restoration process by calling out a rescuer. So let's pick up the story again. Chapter 6, verse 11. It says, The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak of Ophrah that belonged to Joash, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Now this verse seems uh, very innocent at first reading, but there's more going on here than what we may see Threshing floors in that day would be on the top of a hill so that you could take advantage of prevailing winds. Wine presses would be at the foot of the hill. We see Gideon here threshing wheat, not at the threshing floor, but in the wine press. And it's because he's afraid of the Midianites. He's actually expressing some cowardice here because if he were to go to the threshing floor at the top of the hill, the dust cloud that this would form threshing the wheat would draw the attention of the Midianites and they would come and attack and they would take all of his crop. So because he's afraid of the Midianites, because he knows he can't defend himself against the Midianites, he goes down to the wine press where nobody can see what he's doing and it won't attract the attention of the Midianites. So it's at the wine press while he's threshing wheat that God finds him, verse 12, says, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. It's interesting, God calls Gideon a mighty warrior, a mighty warrior before Gideon ever even does anything. And Gideon has done nothing to date to make it look like he's a mighty warrior. But God sees differently than he sees himself. Gideon even knows he's not a mighty warrior right now. Look in verse 14. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord, Gideon asked, How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. 
Gideon says, I'm the weakest and the least. This is a reference really to fighting men. Uh, in that day when there would be a call to arms or a call to war, all the, the fighting men from all the tribes would gather together to get ready for battle. Well, some tribes were known to have more fighting men than other tribes. And some tribes would have better fighting men than other tribes. Well, Gideon's from the tribe of Manasseh. And Manasseh was not one of the big tough tribes. They weren't one of the stronger tribes. They were down a little bit lower on the totem pole. So Gideon says, one, I'm from Manasseh, so I'm not one of the really tough tribes. But on top of that, my clan is the weakest of Manasseh. So not only am I from a, a weaker tribe, but I'm from the weakest clan in that tribe. And not only that, but I'm the least in my entire family. In other words, if I go fight somebody, I'm gonna get beat up. I can't beat up anybody. Even my little sister can beat me up. I can't beat up anybody. But God's looking at him saying, you're a mighty warrior. What's the problem? They're looking through two different lenses. Gideon is looking through a distorted lens and God's looking through his perfect vision of who Gideon is. We tend to see ourselves through the lens of ourselves. God sees us through the lens of his son. We tend to see ourselves the way of what we have done God tends to see us by what Christ has done. Sometimes we tend to see ourselves by what we do or what we can do. God sees us by what he can do in us and through us. We tend to see ourselves through the present, but God sees us through the future. We tend to see ourselves based on what we have made ourselves to be, but God sees us by what he has called us and ordained us to be. So the key for us is to see ourselves the way God sees us. It's to see through the same lens. The key is that we believe what God says about us because when we believe the way God believes about us and sees us, when we see us the same way, then we're able to actually become what God has called us and ordained us to be. We see it all through scripture. Gideon, he's a coward, but God calls him a warrior. David is a shepherd, but God calls him a king. Jacob's the deceiver, but God ordains him as a patriarch. Paul's the persecutor, but God calls him to be an apostle. The thief on the cross that we looked at, the criminal, he becomes a child of the king. When we really believe who and what God has called us to be, then we have the freedom to become what God has actually called us to be. And in Christ, when we go through scripture, and we see what God has called us for those of us who are in Christ. This is what God calls us. This is who he sees us as. Listen to this list of who we are in Christ. Psalm 17 says, I'm the, says you're the apple of the eye of the Father. Psalm 139 says you are fearfully and wonderfully made. John 8:36 says you are free. Romans 8:17 you are an heir. Romans 8:37 you are more than a conqueror. 1 Corinthians 1 you are blameless. 
1 Corinthians 6, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 2, you're a sweet aroma to the Father. 2 Corinthians 3, you are bold. 2 Corinthians 5.17, you're a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.21, you are righteous. You are the righteousness of Christ. Galatians 3, you are redeemed and you are blessed. Ephesians 1, you are forgiven. Ephesians 2, you are a masterpiece. Philippians 4 says you can do all things through Christ. Colossians 3 says you are elect. 1 Thessalonians says you are chosen. 2 Timothy 1 says you have power over fear. 2 Peter 2 says you are holy and a royal priesthood. Revelation 12 says you are victorious. What a list. What a way God sees you. You may not see yourself as any of these. God sees you as every one of these. He sees us differently than we see ourselves. I guarantee you, Gideon did not feel like a mighty warrior. <laughs> Gideon didn't look like a mighty warrior at that time. But God had declared him and empowered him to be a mighty warrior. And this morning, you may not feel or look holy or blameless or bold or righteous or victorious or free or powerful, but you are all of those things because he has declared that over you today and has empowered you to live that way. The key for us this morning is to see ourselves the way God sees us because we tend to see ourselves differently than God. May we believe and trust what God has called us and ordained us to be and walk in it. So that's truth number four. God sees us differently than we see ourselves. Here's truth number five. God is a majority. God, all by himself, is a majority. In chapter seven, verse 12, we see a reminder that the army of the Gideon of the Midianites is massive. It's like a swarm of locusts. In fact, it says the camels are so numerous, it's like trying to count the sands on the beach. You just can't do it. There's too many. In chapter eight, verse 10, we see that the Midianite army is actually 135,000 strong. So we see this Midianite army of 135,000 people. So, the Gideon, so Gideon and his army are going to go to battle, but, but God is going to make a point. And the point he's going to try to make is, I'm a majority. So let's see what God does to try to prove that point. Chapter 7, verse 1. I just turned myself down. Early in the morning, Gideon and all his men camped at the spring of Harod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moray. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands. In order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her, announce now to the people, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will sift them for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. 
300 men laughed with their hands to their mouths. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. It's interesting here that in verses one and two, God says, you have too many men. We need to dwindle the army. You've got too many men for us to go to battle. So in verse three, we actually see that they only have 32,000 men at this point. So what we see initially here is that the Midianite army has 135,000 soldiers. Gideon's army has 32,000 soldiers. So the odds are already against him. So reason says, logic says, hey, if I'm going to go to battle against 135,000, I need at least 135,000 soldiers. So at least it's, it's even game here, maybe even more. But God says, no, that's, what, that's not what we're going to do. God's He's going to try to make a point. So to make the point, he says, I'm going to begin an elimination process. It's going to be cut day for Team Gideon here. So what does God do? Verse 3, anyone who trembles with fear can leave. Now, remember last week, we talked about God understands our humanity. Gideon had fear, and we talked about that. But God was able to work in the midst of Gideon's fear. This is different because we're talking about a different kind of fear here. We're talking about the kind of fear that is just terrifying, trembling in fear, it says. It's the kind of, I can't move kind of fear. I can't work kind of fear. It's, I'm, I'm, just, I'm so terrified. I'm so horrified. It's like I have cement shoes. I can't move. I'm not going to be able to function or fight at all. This is the kind of fear we're talking about here. These guys were so terrified that they weren't even going to be able to fight. So God said, okay, those guys that are that afraid, send them home. So 22,000 of them left. God said, that's still too many. So we see in verse four, what happens? They're gonna go down to the water. And here's kind of what I envision, if you, if you read through this, that happened. Now you've got 10,000 guys going to the water and they all approached the water in one of two ways. Some of them, in essence, were so thirsty, they just basically threw their weapons off. They just kind of went face down into the water, and they're just kind of just lapping it up. They have no idea what's going around. They have no uh, idea of, of the enemy and attack. They, they don't, they're just head first into the water. Well, there's another group that are uh, more aware of their surroundings. They're more controlled. They keep their weapons on and they possibly would just kind of kneel down where they're still looking around and they're able to bring the water kind of up like this to their mouth and they're still able to see if the enemy's approaching. So what God said is those that stayed aware and brought that water up like this, those are the ones that we're gonna go to battle with, send everybody else home. So 9,700 of them leave and it leaves 300 people. Now, I want you to visualize this. I want you to see this a little bit. This won't be to scale, but I want you to see something to, so, so I can make this point. So it's a little audience participation here this morning, okay? You guys on this side, you're gonna be a football team, okay? So I'm gonna ask some of you to stand. Okay, would you two stand? You two stand. You four stand. And you three stand. Two, three, four. Okay? 11-man football team right here, okay? Here's my star quarterback right here. You're going to play these guys, okay? This is the other team, okay? So would you two stand? Would you two stand? Would you two stand? Okay, here's the deal, though. 
you're just a six-man team. Okay, we've got an 11-man football team. We've got a six-man football team. You guys represent the Midianites. You guys represent Gideon and the army. See, at the very onset, it was 135,000 against 32,000. It's as if an 11-man team at the beginning is going to play against a six-man team. It already looks like it's an easy victory, right? Well, God's going to make a point. So he says those guys that are in fear, leave. Two-thirds of that team left. Two-thirds left. So you four, sit down, please. Now we're going to play a game two against 11. <laughs> God says, that's still too many. Let's go down to the water. So 9,700 of them left. And like I said, it's not to scale, but now you be seated. Now it's one against 11. What kind of odds does that look like in a football game? In impossible, right? Thanks, guys. Sit down. Appreciate it. <clears throat> I wanted you to see visually because this is real life back in the day. Try to imagine Gideon with 300 soldiers going to battle, a real battle, against 135,000 trained soldiers. The odds are worse than one person going against 11 in a football team. Let me give you a different visual to see if this makes more sense, the point God's trying to make. In here, I've got a bunch of dirt, okay? Just a bunch of little pebbles and clods, and, and I don't, if, I, if I had to try to count all the little pieces, I don't know what it would be. A million. I don't know. So let's say I have a million little clods and specks of dirt. What do you think would happen if I just start taking these millions of clods and start throwing it up against the window? What do you think is going to happen to the window? Nothing. You may not even hear it. Maybe you'll hear it, peep, maybe. But what if you think if I take this one rock and throw it against the window? It's going to shatter it. Now, this doesn't make sense. There's a million of these and there's one of these. What's the difference? It's the point God's trying to make. There may be a million of these deals, but there's one big rock right here. God's trying to say, I'm a majority. And there may be 135,000 Midianite soldiers, but they're like a bunch of little pebbles and clods to me. I'm the rock of all ages. I'm the sure foundation. I am a majority. And what he's trying to tell Gideon is that all you need is me. I am a majority. And we get down here to, to verse 2. And God says it in Scripture this way to make his point. It says, and why did he decrease the army? It's in order that Israel may not boast against me that her strength did this. God's trying to make a point. His point is, I am the great I am, and I am going to win this victory. I am the great I am, and I am the majority. I am the great I am, and I am the one that's going to give you the power to win this. You don't need 135,000 soldiers. You don't need 32,000 soldiers. Truth be known, you don't need 300 soldiers, but I'm going to give you 300 soldiers. All you need is me. He's trying to tell him, trust in my strength, not in your own. Psalm 20, verse 7 says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Proverbs 21, 31 says, the horse is made ready for battle, but victory rests with the Lord. 
God is making it vividly clear that the victory comes through him. As I read through this portion of the story, it reminds me of a few things about God. One is, God is a jealous God. He doesn't share his glory. So when God does a work in you, he wants and deserves the glory. When God does a work through you, he wants and deserves the glory. When he removes the obstacles of your way, when he moves the mountains, when he orchestrates circumstances to your advantage, when he brings you victory in your struggle, when he defeats the enemy that you're facing, he wants and deserves the glory. But we also see here that God's a victorious God. In 6.16, God says, I will be with you and you will strike down the Midianites. In 7.7, God says, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you from the Midianites. God's also an empowering God. Chapter six, verse 34, he said, the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. When the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, he was empowered to fight and defeat the enemy. And it's the same power that he gives us today. Second Timothy 1, 7, not giving you the spirit of fear, but of power. Acts 1, 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. God's trying to make a point to Gideon and by application to us, that God is the majority and we can trust him to fight our battles. It's God's power in you, it's God's victory for you, and it's God's glory instead of you. See, as we read through this portion of scripture, there's a, there's a spiritual paradox of strength that we see here that we need to remember. God's way is not to make you stronger God's way is to manifest his own strength in you in a greater way. See, God could have said, okay, Israel, I need to make you stronger. You only have 32,000 men, so let's recruit another 100,000 men so we can make this thing even. God didn't increase the strength of Israel. God reduced the strength of Israel to make a point to say, I'm gonna manifest my strength and power in you, And that's what God wants to do in each of our lives. He does not want to make us stronger spiritually. He wants us to yield ourselves to him so that he may manifest his power in us to a greater degree. We, we will trust him, his strength, his power, his wisdom. That's why Paul said, I boast in my weakness. Because when I'm weak, He's made strong. The weaker I become, the stronger he can be in me because it's he living through me instead of me living through myself. This story of reduction of the army, it reminds me of two realities. It's two reminders for us, and I'll close with these two reminders that I think we can take in our work week this week and remember. Here's the first one. God can do much with little. We all know this. We've all heard this. God can do much with little. He defeated an army of 135,000 with his 300 men. He fed 5,000 plus with two fish and five loaves. You may think you have little to offer, but offer it. 
and see what God does. You may think you have little strength and little faith, but offer that and see what God does. You may think you have little love in you for others. Offer it and see what kind of love God will produce inside of you. God can do much with little, but secondly, like it, God can do amazing things through a few people. We see that through scripture. We saw what God did with 12 disciples. We saw what God did with a few hundred in the early church as they turned the world upside down. We read in this story what God did with 300 soldiers. All of whom were simply saying, God, use me. Here I am, use me. Imagine what God could do with you with the heart and the spirit that says, God, I don't have a lot to offer, but I'm offering everything I have. Imagine what he can do through you. Imagine what he could do through River Fellowship, a body this size. If we as a body would say, God, we're yours. We're ready for battle. We're ready to fight in your name. We trust you. We depend upon you, but we are available. Use us any way you want to use us to go out into the world and defend against the enemy. I don't know what God has in store, but I know the truth of Scripture. One is, God sees us differently. He sees us as mighty warriors, holy, blameless, victorious, powerful, free. We need to claim it. And he's a majority. So if you feel like you're the only believer in your workplace, it's okay because you're not. God's there and he's a majority. If you're a student, you feel like you're the only believer in your classroom, you're not. God's with you. You're not alone. You're a majority. May we trust him. We invite you to pray with me this morning. Thanks for listening. To learn more about River Fellowship in Amarillo, Texas, or to hear more messages, go to rfamarillo.org. Thanks. Have a great week.